Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we travel through impressive snow-capped mountains, where we can see glaciers and wildflowers on a trek of more than 100 miles. But this is no remote Himalayan camping adventure like in our last episode. It's in the heart of Europe. Yes, we are finally going to the Alps, where we'll travel the granddaddy of European trekking routes, circling the biggest peak in Western Europe, while we stay in charming hostels and quaint villages. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Tour de Mont Blanc in France, Italy, and Switzerland. Welcome to 2022, everyone. If you are listening to this show when it first comes out, we're at the beginning of 2022. 2021, despite COVID and all the restrictions around COVID, was a pretty good year for hiking for me. I did several trips and a couple of which made it into the show. I did the update of hiking the Ruby Crest Trail, which is in episode 20, where my son and I, along with my friend Tony Wong, hiked the Ruby Crest Trail in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. If you haven't heard that episode, I recommend checking out episode 7 first about the Ruby Crest Trail, and then episode 20 about my hike on that trail. My family also went to Yosemite and hiked Half Dome and Clouds Rest, which we covered in episode 18. And if you're a fan of Yosemite, uh, definitely check out that episode. Gives you some great background on Yosemite as well as on two of its most iconic hikes. On different episodes of the show in 2021, we also went to a lot of different parts of the world. We ventured into Portugal, England, Nepal, and Australia, as well as expanding into other parts of the United States like the Carolinas. In 2022, I have a pretty ambitious hiking plan for myself, and we'll see how that goes. I'll keep you posted. But I'm going to try to do quite a few hikes this year, and I hope to cover several of them on the show. I do have some international travel planned this year, but with COVID restrictions and changing conditions, we'll see how that goes. All right, a little bit on the status of the show. We have listeners now in more than 80 countries. So thank you for all of you who are listening within the United States and around the world. The listenership continues to grow with each episode, so I really appreciate that those of you who have been listening for a while are sticking with it, and to those of you who are new to the show, welcome, and thank you also for listening. I have lots of ideas for the show for the coming year and beyond, and some great episodes coming up in the next few months as well. In this episode, we're venturing into the Alps, but I'm also planning to finally make it to New England. And more on that at the end of the show as we preview our next episode. And also treks in Europe and Japan, as well as, of course, more backpacking adventures in the United States for the coming year. The ideas are flowing from me, from the hikes I'm doing, and from listeners, which is great to see. 
So keep the suggestions coming. If you've done a multi-day hike or trek that you think we should cover, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. All right, on this episode of the show, our guest is Don Kinsel, one of my very good friends and someone my wife and I have known for many, many years. Our families hiked the Tour de Mont Blanc together in 2017, and Don was the one who inspired our families to do that trip. She and I have planned a number of hikes for our families over the years, and we'll talk about that on the show. Dawn also leads hikes for the Mountaineers organization in the Seattle area, which she'll also talk about. So let's talk about our episode for today. Mont Blanc stands at 15,771 feet, which is 4,807 meters. It's the highest peak in Europe, west of the Caucasus. It's the tallest peak of the Alps. And for time immemorial, it must have been pretty tempting to climb. But as of the late 18th century, as far as we know, nobody had reached the summit. Horace Benedict de Saussure, a wealthy scientist from Geneva, wanted to change that. In 1760, he offered a substantial reward for whomever could find a route to the summit. And for 15 years, there wasn't much of a response. But then in 1775, Thomas Blakey, a Scottish botanist, along with a local 18-year-old named Michel Gabriel Picard, spent one week ascending some of the glaciers on Mont Blanc, going farther up than anyone had previously. But they were really just looking for plants. That was Blakey's interest as a botanist. But in Michel Picard, this inspired something more. In 1783, Picard, now the doctor for the city of Chamonix, tried to climb Mont Blanc again, this time with another man from Geneva named Marc-Théodore Bourri, but they got no further than the prior attempt. Bourri was a pompous and egocentric official of the cathedral from Geneva, but when they got to some of the glaciers, he was afraid to even walk on them, and they had to turn back. In 1784, the next year then, Picard and his assistant found a route to get closer to the top. Bourri heard about this, and he hired guides and tried the same route, but he didn't get any farther than he had before. Two of his guides, though, made it pretty far, only about 300 meters from the top, so it was starting to look like you could get to the summit. A couple years later, in 1786, in June, two separate parties made an attempt. One of the parties took with them a young crystal hunter named Jacques Balma. And during this attempt, Balma got stuck out there at night uh, when he was out searching for crystals and he couldn't get back to where the camp was. And he was forced to spend the night pretty high up on the glacier. At the time, people were genuinely surprised that he'd actually survived at that altitude. And it started to convince people that this really was doable. Only a couple months later, in August 1786, Dr. Picard took Jacques Balmain, the crystal hunter, as his porter on a route that Picard had concluded after three full years of study was the way to go. And this was a different route than a ridge route they had been previously planning to use. On August 7th, 1786, they camped at the top of Montagne de la Côte, And the next morning, they started out at 4 a.m. They had no rope, 
just iron pointed batons that they could jam into the snow and ice and negotiated the crevasses up the glacier. They had a long, grueling day. By mid-afternoon, they had reached the Grand Plateau, a huge field of snow and ice. Balma wanted to turn back, but Picard insisted. And at 6.23 p.m., they reached the summit. Once they reported their success and, and claimed their reward from Saussure, Balma became the celebrity, not Picard. Balma had help from Bourri. Balma became an international celebrity. And Dr. Picard, who was really the driving force of the expedition and had all the experience in the prior attempts and the planning, was largely forgotten. This was in part because Balma was a theatrical sort of self-promoter, very different kind of person than Dr. Picard. Today, there is a statue in Chamonix of Balma pointing out the route to Saussure, who had incited the race to the summit with his reward that he had offered. Eventually, Chamonix did put up a bust of Picard in Chamonix as well, so he did get some acclaim eventually. And the rest is history, as they say. The modern sport of mountaineering was essentially born out of the climb to the top of Mont Blanc, and a sort of golden age of climbing ensued. Today, about 20,000 people a year go to the summit of Mont Blanc. So I don't know, maybe it wasn't so hard after all. So that's the story of the first successful climb of Mont Blanc. Let's do a little background on the Alps themselves. What are the Alps? The Alps are the highest and most extensive mountain range that is entirely within Europe. The range is a giant crescent or arch of about 1,200 kilometers or 750 miles across eight countries. Austria, Italy, France, and Switzerland make up the most significant portions size-wise of the Alps. They extend all the way from Nice in France on the Western Mediterranean to Trieste in Italy on the Adriatic. They were formed by plate tectonics starting about 300 million years ago as the African and Eurasian plates collided. The Alps have a huge variety of plant species, over 13,000 different plants, and quite a bit of wildlife as well. Two animals that are most interesting to me and that we saw during our trek are the ibex and the chamois. The ibex is a kind of mountain goat, but the males have this really long curved horn that's really impressive. It's a huge horn in comparison to the size of their bodies. And we saw one of them at a distance with the big horns from uh, the refuge at Lac Blanc. The chamois is closer to an antelope and smaller than the ibex. We saw several of those at the top of the Col des Fours and also on the trail below Lac Blanc. Human history in the Alps goes way back. It goes all the way back to the Paleolithic period. There's evidence of settlements in the Alps as far back as 10,000 years. A mummified man 5,000 years old was found on a glacier in the Alps in 1991. The Carthaginian Hannibal famously crossed the Alps with elephants in 218 BC in the Second Punic War. He was coming from the area of what is today Spain 
and cross the Alps to get into Italy to attack the Romans. Even today, there's lots of debate about the route he took. Much, much later, in the 19th century, Napoleon also crossed the Alps with an army. The Tour de Mont Blanc itself started as a shepherd and trade route, or a combination of shepherd routes and trade routes. Some of those trade routes, though, go way back, including uh, Roman trade routes. Saussure and some of his friends, now we're talking about the same Saussure who put out the reward for someone to climb to the top of Mont Blanc. He and his friends attempted a circumnavigation of the mountain in 1767. So as far back as the mid-18th century, there were attempts to encircle the entire range. Alpinism grew over time, as I mentioned, and eventually roads and railroads connected Chamonix and France more easily to civilization, and, and that brought more people. In fact, the first Winter Olympics were held in Chamonix in 1924. But alpine walking as we know it today really didn't become a, a modern phenomenon until the 1960s and 1970s. And so it's really then that the idea of the sort of modern route of the Tour de Mont Blanc came into being. And over time, even so, it has evolved and the route has been modified and changed. And as we will talk about, there are options along the route. So it's not a clearly defined route in some ways, but there are some pretty common ways of doing it, as we'll talk about. So with that background, let's jump into my conversation with Don Kinzel about our two families' trek on the Tour de Mont Blanc in 2017. Don Kinsel, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much, Jeremy. I'm glad to be here. So, Don, how long have we known each other? We have known each other since, I think, before I got married to Grant. So that would have to be since 1997, maybe, 96. Yeah, I mean, our first kids were born, your son and my daughter was were born in 2000. And we've known each other at least since then. And they were so close that I think Max was due to be born a week before Sonia, but Sonia ended up always ahead of the curve. <laughs> Sonia yeah. ended up being a few weeks older than Max. <laughs> That's right. And as the kids grew up, we went backpacking and hiking and camping a ton of times. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We started out car camping, as I recall, because they were so little. and. It was kind of incredible because camping is the perfect, perfect activity to do with toddlers because they can play in the dirt, at least for us. Like we were happy to let them play in the dirt, happy to let them scramble on rocks. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful way um, to spend time together and be with your kids. It was really fun. And then as they got older, we actually started going backpacking. Yes. Yeah. And that is a terrific activity for kids too, just because of the sense of accomplishment. There just aren't that many opportunities these days, I think, to completely unplug. And when you do that, you really connect together. And it's just a great way to raise your kids, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And then eventually we went trekking together in Europe, which was your idea. And we'll talk about that. Sure. 
I just wanted to throw out my one of my best memories from camping with your family was Eleanor, your daughter, uh, with marshmallows stuck all over her hands and face, <laughs> mixed with all the dirt in Yosemite. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a really, really great trip. That was really, really fun. We had lots of fun time at the campground, lots of great times on the trails. It's kind of funny how strongly their personality came out early on. Um, I just remember Sonia and Max being sort of at the head of the trail and leading the way for quite a bit of it. And Justin and Eleanor kind of happily going along with it, I guess, sort of in that second child <laughs> kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of role. <laughs> but it yeah. was it was so much fun. I agree. And so now, so that was back when we lived, uh, both of our families lived in the Los Angeles area. And then I don't even remember what order or how it happened, but we eventually moved to the San Francisco area and you eventually moved to the Seattle area. And I know you've been doing a ton of hiking since you've been in Seattle. Can you talk a little bit about doing the hikes you do there? And also, I think sure. you, you lead some hikes as well, right? I do. Seattle has a tremendous outdoor culture. Um, it's really easy to um, get access to great trails. You know, there's great hiking half an hour from the city. And there's an organization called the Mountaineers that is a great way to get to know people who are in um, the hiking, climbing, scrambling, they do winter sports, they go out on the water. It's, it's kind of anything outdoors they do. And they provide courses to share their expertise. And what I, because I love to hike, I got involved with, they have a club, a sub club for long distance hikers. And it's a seasonal thing. It goes from April through September because hiking is a bit seasonal here because of the snow. And we start out going, I don't know, eight to 10 miles and a few thousand elevation gain. And then the graduation hike might be 20 miles long. And you get to go to some extraordinary places without carrying a backpack. And a lot of the hikes are becoming more and more permitted here. And the lotteries have fierce competition. So it does get you access to trails that you wouldn't otherwise get to see easily by doing this. And the other great thing about it is just the community because only about a hundred people participate each year. And so you really get to know the hikers. There's always somebody new in the group, but there's, you know, several people that you'll already know. And it's, it's, it's really fun. And I lead hikes within that group. What has your experience been like in leading those hikes? It has been great because the, Mountaineers has this culture where they educate the hikers. So everyone shows up at the trailhead with the right shoes, the right clothing, water, food, and they have a really good way of communicating what the pace of the hike will be like. And somebody may be having an off day and slow and, you know, the group may spread out a little bit, but in general, it's just a really positive way to do group hiking, I think. So if somebody's in the Seattle area and wants to participate, how do they do that? Oh, the Mountaineers has a website. Um, I think it's www.mountaineers.org. And you can try out a hike without being a member. I think you can go on two hikes or any outings without being a member. But I think the best way to access the Mountaineers is through taking a class. It could be navigation. It could be scrambling. I think the most community-oriented, if you're looking to meet other people who love to, to get outside, would probably be the scrambling course 
or this conditioning hiking series course that I'm a part of are very community oriented. You will, you will meet people and you'll meet a huge variety of people. I mean, it's everyone from CEOs to stay at home moms to postal carriers, recent college grads, people in their seventies. It's a really terrific organization. That sounds great. Let's turn now to the Tour de Mont Blanc. And I'm going to give it the, the English pronunciation for the moment. I can sure. try it. Tour du Mont Blanc en français. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mais uh, aujourd'hui en anglais. <laughs> I think that's probably best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So on the Tour de Mont Blanc. All right. So how did you learn about the Tour de Mont Blanc? And how did you get interested in doing the Tour de Mont Blanc? Well, actually, it was through my Mountaineers uh, friends. Um, I met a couple of people who, hike leaders, in fact, who had gone on the Tour de Mont Blanc with REI. They, which is, in my sort of view of things, is sort of the Cadillac version of doing the Tour de Mont Blanc because with REI, you're kind of set up in the best hotels around the route. Um, you have a guide that accompanies you from place to place. If something goes wrong, which on their hike it did, they had a huge snowstorm in July or August. And so one of the passes was closed. And so REI ferried them around in a bus from one point to the next. So it didn't interrupt their trip at all. Um, and they just could not stop talking about how amazing the Tour de Mont Blanc was. And when I was listening to it, I thought, I, I really want to do this. I really want to share this experience with a group. But of course, I want to share it with people who I know and love, you know, and you guys were just the obvious connection because we had, we had such a history of hiking and camping and backpacking together. And I, I didn't want to spend, frankly, the kind of money that REI costs on the trip because, you know, with a party of four or eight as we were, I think maybe it cost four to five times as much as the way we did it. And also it's, for us, we're pretty accomplished outdoors people, and I felt very confident in our ability to navigate on our own. And frankly, the idea of being able to do it at our own pace and make choices on our own was, was pretty appealing. So that's how I decided that I wanted to do the Mont Blanc, Tour de Mont Blanc. And as you may know, my husband, like hiking is not his first love. He goes along and enjoys it while he's there. But I wanted to make it more fun for him. And a way to do that would be to include you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Grant and I go way back, former work colleagues from a long time ago. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And it's, as you know, it's the same thing with my wife, Andy. And she is, you know, she'll, she enjoys the outdoors. She does hikes. She does shorter backpacking trips. But it's not her first love either. And um, I think the same thing was true. If you're going, she's interested in going. And also, I think, you know, as we'll talk about as we go through the hike a little bit, it certainly appealed probably to to Grant and to Andy that this hike, you know, you're not sleeping in the dirt in a tent. You've got some really beautiful mountain refuges and some really quaint towns along the route. And it's just, you know, it's it's not luxury necessarily, but it's it's a really comfortable way to go do something like this. And really delicious food. That made a huge difference to Grant. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that as well. 
Um, and I have to, I mean, it seems like throughout the history of our families doing trips together, you and I have been sort of the driving forces on the outdoor <laughs> activities, but Grant and Andy have been good sports all along. So <laughs> I agree. I think I know Grant enjoys it. I, I know Andy does as well. And just the opportunity to be outdoors with your family is, is really appealing to Grant. Well, I have to say this, um, up till this point, I had done all my trekking and hiking in the United States and had always thought about uh, doing it overseas. And at the time, you know, we had young kids for a long time. And as they got older, that seemed to be more of a possibility. But this Tour de Mont Blanc trip really spurred in me the idea and the desire to do trips in other parts of the world. And I have since done trips in South America and Asia and the Himalayas. Thanks to you for even getting me out there to do this, because it really got me to see the possibilities that were out there. And in some way, it sort of helped me to think about this show, right? Because this show that I do is about both backpacking trips that people do close to home or in their own region in the United States, but also about trips that you can do anywhere in the world in a trekking environment, which is different than backpacking, where you might be staying in hostels or hotels or inns or you know local tea houses or whatever it is around the world. Um, and anyway, and this this trip on the Tour de Mont Blanc was sort of the the initiation for me in doing something different than what I had done up to then. Yeah, the Tour de Mont Blanc is great because you really do experience the very distinct cultures of the three countries around the trail. And it is, you know, for tourists. I mean, it's people from all over the world that are going around, but it feels in a way more authentic, perhaps than some of the more curated tourist activities that you can do. Absolutely. So, so let's go back now to 2017 or a little before when you were thinking, okay, this is what I want to do. You invite us. And of course I say, we're in, we're going. <laughs> I can always count on you for that, Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I am going to get you guys to go to Nepal someday. I'm going to, it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk Grantham to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what did you do to plan this hike? And I know that I participated somewhat, but I think it was really you who, who found the, the company that we used. And, and what, what did you do to, to think about that? And how did you think about how we wanted to do this trip? Well, I am the type of person who loves to research trips and hikes. And I can really, really get down into the weeds comparing and contrasting. And this is such a big trip that I could have researched it for months probably. And I didn't really want to spend the time doing that. So I thought it would probably be best to go with a company to set things up. And the other thing was, was I felt like because of this party that we were with our spouses, um, that we really would want to do the, have the luggage transfer and whatnot. So that made it even more um, important to go with the service. And Mac Adventures, I had never known, or Max Adventure, I had never known anyone who had used them before, but they got great reviews online. And whenever we asked them a question, and we did ask them a lot of questions, I don't know if you remember. I do. They came right back, immediate response. The service was terrific, frankly. So I felt pretty comfortable. And I have to say, in retrospect, it was an excellent decision to go with them because not only did they do a great job getting us reservations and what whatnot, but I felt like all of the accommodations were so different from one another. I thought that was a really great part of the trip, too. And I think they did a good job putting it together. 
Yeah, that's a good point about the accommodations being varied and giving us a different experience every day. I, I appreciated that as well. I think a couple of the considerations that went into planning that I think were important. One was the fact that we were not going to have a guide with us, that what Max Adventure was going to do is going to make reservations for us and be available if we needed to call them if there was a problem. But we were still doing the hike on our own. I agree. The other thing that they did that was, for me, quite reassuring was they provided a list of transportation services. So if somebody had sprained their ankle or needed a day off, it would have been quite easy to just call the taxi service that they had listed on their information sheet and the person could just take a day off and go to the next place that we were staying. So that was reassuring. One of the other things that I think was really helpful was the fact that we were able to adjust a schedule. If you were going on a big trip with REI or something, you would sort of be stuck with whatever their schedule is. But because it was our custom trip, um, they gave us a proposed itinerary and you and I sat down at your kitchen table and Mm -hmm. we actually... (laughs) <laughs> went through the itinerary and we decided to make some changes um, to accommodate what we thought would work best for our group. And I think the decisions we made actually turned out to be great. When I was thinking about what I wanted out of the trip, I, I definitely, we were a fit group of people. All of our kids, while they're at the time, my kids were not huge hikers and they didn't train in any way for the hiking. They're both athletes as are your kids. So I knew that if it was more challenging, it would be more fun. There's a little bit more of a accomplishment factor. So I wanted that. But I also didn't want to go to breakneck pace where you didn't get time to enjoy where you were at. So I felt like the way we broke it apart, it was challenging and fun. Yeah, totally agree. And one thing we did that I think was a good idea, and I think is a good idea on any trip of this length, is we had a half a day with um, half the day off. And we did that, I think, on maybe the fourth day. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that. But that was, I think, super helpful, both for our spouses who aren't used to 10, 12 days in a row of hiking, uh, and just to give everyone a chance to sort of soak it up and enjoy a little bit. Yeah, I think after Cormayor, I noticed a huge pickup in enthusiasm from all four of the kids. At that point, you know, they had had some a few days of really great experiences under their belt. And it seemed like they were actually starting to look forward to each day even more. And certainly yeah. throughout this trip, they were out ahead of all of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun. Yeah, they were teenagers and fully capable, good hikers, athletes, all of that. So, yeah, we were starting to feel, uh, you know, I think that's a good point in life when you've switched. And instead of you sort of waiting for them, they're waiting for you. Yeah, it's, it, it was excellent. <laughs> so let's go through some of the logistics on, on this hike, and then we can get into the itinerary a little bit after. Sure. Pretty much this has to be a summer hike, right? Like this is an area that snowed in throughout the winter. Absolutely. We did it in late July, beginning of August. And I don't remember encountering any snow fields, but I would say that there were still wildflowers but maybe if we'd gone a few weeks earlier, there would have been it would have been more wildflowers. But I think the trade-off is then you start running the risk of encountering snowfields. I think that's right. So this is definitely a summer hike. And like you said, you could push for the early side if you want to try to catch the wildflowers, but keep in mind you might have snow. If you go later, less wildflowers. So it's a little bit different. Sure. 
That said, even though it's summer weather, this is Europe. It's a, a climate where there's a lot of rain from time to time. So you, you definitely need, be, need to be prepared for rain, right? We were spectacularly lucky on our hike. We had maybe a half day of rain, you know, day three or four. And then the last day it rained. And for me, I thought that was spectacular weather. My husband was like, oh, it rained on the last day. But I think if you go into it expecting like it could rain every day. And then if you get a sunny, clear day, just count your blessings. I totally agree. I I was surprised at how nice the weather was. I was expecting a lot of rain just because it's a climate where there can be afternoon thunder showers. But you're like you said, I think it was day three we had a little, and that was co- sort of coming into the the place where we were going to stay. There was some, mm-hmm. and then day four, which worked out perfectly because that was the day we had a half day off in Cormayeur, and so we actually mm-hmm. got into our hotel. I think when it really started coming down, and so we were yeah. out of the rain when it happened. Um, and then, like you said, the last day there was like some fog and mist and some drizzle, and but that, other than that, it was pretty good. Yeah, it does speak a little bit to what you should have in your pack. I yes. think. You should have rain gear in your pack for every single day. And then, you know, you can look at the weather at where you're staying. They'll usually post what the weather will be. And you might also want to carry a fleece with you. I mean, it it can get cold as well. Yeah, and that's a good point about your pack. Because we used luggage transfer, we were not carrying a ton of gear. We were carrying... Uh, day packs. And and you basically need to have a lunch if you aren't going to be going through an area where you can buy a lunch. And you want to have rain gear and extra clothing in case it gets, you know, the weather changes, it gets cold or something like that. And that's pretty much it. I mean, obviously, maybe a little first aid kit or something like that. And we all had maps and a list of all the places we were staying just in case. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then I will mention, though, that even with luggage transfer on two days of this trip, there was not the option for luggage transfer because two of the refuges we stayed in were away from roads or away from even dirt roads. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't get luggage into those places. And I think that was Refugio Bonatti and Lac Blanc, if I remember correctly. Correct. And so as a result, for those two nights, I think uh, Grant and I had brought bigger packs to prepare for those two nights. And so that when we got to those two nights, we just carried a little bit of extra, like our hostel sheets, the sheets we put on the beds, and a couple of other things just to make sure we had enough clothes to get through those nights. Yeah. All right. So and then let's talk about distance and, and time. Miles, according, when you look it up, it says it's about 110 miles, which is about 170 kilometers. But Grant actually had his GPS on the entire trip. And I think it came out, our actual walking distance with all the sort of weaving and bobbing in little areas came out to about 115 miles on his GPS, if I remember. That sounds about right, because, you know, sometimes the refuges were a little bit off the path. And we did this in 11 days. Do you think that's a pace that makes sense for most people? I think it depends on who you are. I think if you're in reasonably good shape, or actually if you've trained for it, 11 days is great for a, sort of a relaxing holiday. I think, I mean, you could do it in seven or eight days if you're super fit and you're, you really are, you know, wanting to cover ground. You could also go longer. I don't think I would want to go much longer than 11 days personally, but you could. There are certainly enough places to sleep along the way that you could make it much shorter walking days. Yeah, I agree. But I think the the pace we did was a pretty good one in the sense that you you generally, you're not hurrying in the morning. You have time right. to get up and enjoy breakfast and get ready and go. 
And then you have time to enjoy a lunch and you usually get to your destination by mid-afternoon. There are a couple of longer days, but most times you're getting there by mid-afternoon. So you really do have some time to enjoy in the afternoon, wherever the location is. And so to me, it was a really nice pace. I agree completely. All right. And what are the things that we'll talk about, I think, more as we go through the specifics, but I just want to mention because it involves planning, is that there are some optional routes and there are some places where you have to decide if you want to do something that maybe is shorter but steeper or longer but more flat. And there was one, I think, on the second day and one toward the end that were actually pretty big decisions as far as what the experience is like. And so I think people need to think about those considerations as well when they're doing planning. Right. I guess you would consider both your energy and fitness level that day, as well as the weather. Yes, right. You could change that on the fly. Although I guess mm-hmm. it might depend if you if you picked a place to stay for the evening based on that. Um, it might mean that you're sort of stuck with that decision. Mm-hmm. Although I should mention that not everyone will do this trip in the way that we did in the sense that if you're a smaller group, one or two people, you might be able to do this trip without making any advanced reservations and just sort of call ahead each day or wing it. Because you know, we we were in a position with eight people where there's no way you can just show up at a hostel and hope to find a, eight beds for you know our group. Right. I think if you carried a tent with you as well, that would give you a lot of flexibility. You don't have to stay in hostels. That's true. Although not like the people we met at Lac Blanc. I don't know if you remember them. There was this younger couple and they had brought a tent, but they had gotten the last room available in the hostel because they got up to the mountain, they opened up their packs and they found they forgot the tent poles. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do remember that now that you say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As far as elevation, um, there's a lot of up and down on this hike. I think it's about 10,600 meters of up and down and 35,000 feet. And that's probably doing the standard route without the steep options that we took mm-hmm. on a couple of the days. But one thing I'll say is it, in my view, it, and you can tell me if you disagree, it doesn't really get to an elevation or an altitude where it's a problem as far as being a you know, hiker at high altitude. Like if you're on Mount Rainier or in the high Sierra or in the you know Himalayas or somewhere where altitude can really be an issue. Here, I think it doesn't really get above about 8,500 feet, which is still less than 3,000 meters. Right. I don't think altitude is an issue at all. And I think one of the joys of this particular hike is how varied each day can be because you might have a really challenging day two planned and then day three can be quite, quite relaxing. So that makes it a lot easier as well. Agreed. All right. You mentioned before luggage transfer, and I think you and I both agree that's well worth it. Uh, It's not that expensive, really. I think it was like at the time, four years ago, five years ago, it was about $90 per person for the entire trip. Correct. Pretty good price for the fact that you don't have to carry anything pretty much except a small day pack. (laughs) It was really nice. (laughs) Really nice. The company we used was called Taxi Besson or Besson. Mm -hmm. So, but if you go through a company like Max Adventures, they'll set you up with somebody. And what about water on the trail? So throughout the day, there were, I think there were a couple options. There were some places where you could stop at a restaurant or a cafe if there was something like that available. You might also be in a situation where you run out of water and there's a stream going by. Um, Were you filtering as you, if you did that, or did you not pick up water along the way? How did that work for you? I was filtering along the way. Um... I always carry a, a Katadin Bee Free with me, which is a very lightweight water filter. 
I was filtering and also sharing the filtered water with others in our group. And also there were quite a few just public center of the town or village square fountains. Yes. So I, I didn't filter that water. I just filled up my bottle. I did the same thing. Exactly. I had the, the be free as well and also um, used those fountains and, and places we stopped for lunch and things like that. Yeah. Water was abundant. You didn't have to carry a heavy pack filled with all your water for the day. That wasn't really an issue, I thought. Yeah. And I guess one of the, re- I mean, we should mention to people what this area looks like. I mean, you are in, you are in high mountain as you know, everyone's heard of the Alps and the word Alpine comes from it. And everybody knows that there's big mountains there, but these are pretty impressive peaks. Mont Blanc is the biggest peak in Western Europe. It's, you know, I think over 15,000 feet. And as a result of the the climate there, there are glaciers in a lot of places. And so you have all this runoff from glaciers. So there's a ton of water just coming off of these glaciers that you can see from various points along the trail. Yeah. The terrain is stunning. And the environment is also, it's quite different than in the United States. I mean, there are farms and it's developed in a way that you don't really see here in the United States. So it's quite a quite an experience to be able to go over there. One of the things that I thought was interesting was navigating this trail. There are mm-hmm. some points along the trail where it's a little bit confusing, like where you're supposed to turn, because maybe you go through a town or something, and you got to p- figure out where to pick up the trail on the other end. But for the most part, I thought navigation was pretty simple. And they have all these trail markings. I think in the French and Swiss parts, they were maybe red and blue or something like that. And then in the Italian parts, they were yellow and black symbols. Yes. I thought the trail was very well marked. The other um, thing about the trail, it was incredibly well maintained. I thought there wasn't a lot of erosion. There wasn't brush growing onto the trail. It was quite an easy tread, I would say. Part of that is because this is such a heavily traveled trail. I mean, I have to say, this is a beautiful location. You've got glaciers, you've got high peaks, you're in a fantastic area with, like you said, farms and little cute villages and all of the stuff you imagine of going and hiking in the Alps in Europe. But you are not alone (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. And I think you just have to realize this is not a, quote, wilderness hike in the same way it is in the United States if you're up in the high Sierra or in the Rockies where there's no town for for miles and miles. It's just not that environment. So you just have to understand that that's what it is, I think, if you're going to do this. Yeah, you have to think about about your manager expectations a little bit. I had expected it to be much more heavily trafficked than it was. And I was surprised at the amount of time that you could walk for a few hours without seeing anyone. And I think it might be limited a bit by the amount of lodging that's available throughout the route. I mean, that's sort of a natural limiting factor because there's only so many people that are willing to sort of do the wild camping, as they call it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's interesting that I thought I felt like there was a lot of people out there and you felt like it. And so I think it is, like you said, maybe it's just expectations and you have an image of what this kind of hike is like. and And it's a little bit, you know. So one way or the other, it might be a little different, but I I enjoyed all of it nonetheless. It wasn't a problem at all. I have a feeling the type of hiking that you and I do on a regular basis may be different. Like you do more backpacks, less travel destinations. I tend to do hikes that are closer into the Seattle, Mm -hmm. greater Seattle area, and they are getting pretty heavily trafficked up here. (laughs) Okay. Um, One thing I'll note is that the signs that I thought 
uh, the, the trail signs were really helpful in one way, which is that they were marked by the time to the next location yeah. versus distance, which for Americans who don't convert kilometers very quickly in their head, that's a, a very helpful factor just to think about, okay, this next location that I'm getting to is an hour and a half and it'll say 1.5 hours. And for sort of a typical hiker to make that distance, which I thought was pretty helpful. Yeah, I thought that was great too. What about language on the trail? There were in three different countries with different languages. How did that work for you? I thought it was great. I studied French in college and spent a semester in Geneva. So I enjoy trying out my French. I'm not particularly great at it, but people are very, very happy to have you try. And um, every, I think pretty much anybody speaks English on the trail. So that was also, it's pretty easy, I think. Yeah, I, I thought English was, like in a lot of places that are touristy, to some extent, English is sort of a language that everyone knows enough of to get by. Mm -hmm. Also, I thought French was pretty much the dominant language throughout, except in the couple of days that we were in the Italian part of the trail. Um, yeah. So that includes the Swiss part. You're in the French-speaking part of Switzerland when you're in the Swiss part of the trail. So French works, a little bit of Italian, but English works pretty well as well. Um, what about for navigation? I had these maps called the uh, Carte de Rondonnet um, by the Institut Géographique. And then we had two maps. One was called uh, Saint-Gervais and the other was Chamonix. I don't remember them being terribly helpful on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, but I think they were helpful in planning and maybe in the evenings in the hotels looking at, you know, what we were doing the next day. There's a book by Kev Reynolds. It gives more of a descriptive. So you can, you can he'll say you're passed by this farm and, and Andy and I did use that on um, one day. We pulled it out to make sure we were on the right path. But the trail is so well marked that we didn't really have to do that very often. Another way to navigate is what my husband Grant did. Before we went on the trip, we bought these Garmin Phoenix uh, watches. And he bought the size face where you can actually download a map of a destination onto the watch before you go. And he was able to navigate using his Garmin Phoenix watch. And part of the reason why we got those was, well, I guess it's just a safety feature, but also I thought it might be make the trail more fun for him. If he had like some tech to sort of, to monitor his progress, I thought that would be important. And it worked. He did enjoy using that. It was fun. I totally agree. Both that it was useful and both that it kept Grant busy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that it kept him busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't use my Phoenix that much for navigating on the trip, but I do use it every hike I do now because it, it's a great way to monitor your pace, how far you've gone. Um, it's, it's kind of a good safety tool to know where you're at. It helps you keep track of where you are. The Kev Reynolds book is by Cicerone, and it's called Trekking the Tour of Mont Blanc, Complete Two-Way Trekking Guide. And I, I agree, that's a really helpful book for preparing. And it's also got kind of, it's a small book with a waterproof cover, so you can bring it on the trail. What about getting out there? So we, Andy and I kind of did a special thing where we were, we had gone to Marseille before the trip. So we were in Southern France for a while and then drove up. Um, but that's not the typical way to get there. What's the easiest way to get to this hike? I would think that the easiest way would be to fly into Geneva and then take a transfer service to Les Uches. I think it might be 30 minute drive. It's not too far at all. And the transfer services are quite reasonable. Is that what you guys did? We started in Normandy and rented oh, a right. car and drove across France. And we, so we dropped it off in Chamonix. But at the end of the trek, 
we did use a transfer service to get to the Geneva airport. Okay. And so one consideration on any loop hike, which this is, is which way to go. How did we think about that question? I think we did consider it. It wasn't like we automatically said, yes, let's do the traditional counterclockwise route. We thought about the elevation gain and what that experience would be like. And if you go counterclockwise, starting in Les Ouches, your first day is pretty mild, which is kind of a nice way to start a long distance trek. If you go clockwise, starting in Les Ouches, I think your first day is quite extreme. Um, there's a lot of elevation gain. And I think that would have set a bad tone for our group. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> no, I completely agree. I think we made the right decision. And having now come down that part at the end, yes, it definitely was a steep descent at the end, and that would have been tough as a first day. So I agree that the counterclockwise starting in Les Uches was a good option. We stayed the night before in Les Uches so that we were ready to start out that morning. Um, we stayed in the Hotel du Bois. I don't know if you remember our check-in at that hotel, but... When they heard that we were with Mac Adventures, they were like, oh, you're with Mac Adventures. And they gave us this super warm welcome. And it really was quite reassuring that, yes, we had selected well. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that now that you mention it. I don't remember there being any permits needed for this trip in any way. I mean, you, if you're working with a company, I'm sure they would take care of it if there were. But I don't remember that being an issue at all. Right. There were no permits. Okay. And we've talked about the, the accommodations a little bit already, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we kind of go through the itinerary. And I guess, you know, we did talk a little bit about what this area looks like, but anything else you want to say about sort of what the environment of this trip is? I would say that all of the towns and villages that we walked through had a really strong mountain ski town kind of vibe, and, which is what you would expect, but it was really enchanting to be in that culture, I would say. And all different kinds of environments, like Chamonix was a little bit more like a city. And then you also got out and stayed in rural farms. So, But but they all shared that common mountain culture, which was fun. Yeah, I completely agree. Chamonix was sort of, you know, it had the, the French Alpinist sort of culture. And then Cormayeur was more the Italian version of that. Uh, and then and there was everything in between. And I thought in the Swiss part that the little towns were really neat little towns. And they also had a sort of climbing or hiking or alpinist kind of vibe to them. And a lot of this is ski resorts in the winter. I mean, a lot of the areas we hiked through were sort of dirt roads going under ski lifts or around near ski lifts or and there's gondolas. And, you know, it's one of the things about Europe. You get to the top of some peak and there's a little restaurant where you can sit down and have a beer. <laughs> and then there's a people who have come up on a gondola who didn't have to hike at all. Um, so there's there it is interesting that Europe has that, you know, uh, sort of civilized approach to the Alpine environment. It's nice. All right. So what do you think about now going through sort of how this trip went for us? Sure. Okay. So as you said, we started in Les Uches. Our first day was Les Uches to Les Contamines. And that was about 16K distance. Anything that strikes you about that first day? It was a really easy hike. It was a nice warm up. One thing that I was surprised about were, were the number of mountain bikers on the trail. In retrospect, I'm like, of course, it's France. It's got a huge biking culture. They were very respectful and it was very easy to share the trail with them, but it, what, there were a significant number of mountain bikers on that trail. 
Yeah. It's funny that you remember that first day as easy. I don't remember it as super hard, but I do remember the first half of that day was uphill. We sort of went uphill through like a ski resort area. And then finally after that, it was a pretty easy coast down to our destination, which was nice. And the accommodations that night were in a a cute little uh, hotel, I thought, Le Christiania. Yes. Uh, It was a nice introduction to the kind of accommodations you might have on the trail, I thought. Yeah, they were quite nice. And then our, our second day was a butt kicker. The second day yes. was a tough one. <laughs> and we knew that. We knew that like when we were planning the trip. And I was particularly difficult for my wife. And I have to say that I still am very thankful to you for, for helping her <laughs> through that difficult day. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that. That's from Les Contaminines to um, Refuge des Motets. And it's yes. the route we took is about 20 kilometers. Pretty good day, 12-ish miles. Mm-hmm. But we're going basically uphill for a long, long time. Yes, there was quite a bit of elevation gain. And I think we end up at the highest point that's on the entire trek that day, at the Col de Four. I think so. What I remember about that day is, is I kept thinking we were close to being at the top of where we were going, and then there was always more up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, a, it was, we knew it was going to be the longest day hiking going in, and I think we had talked about that as a group. So because I, I think expectation setting is pretty important in terms of how you experience a hike. And I will say that Andy and I definitely brought up the rear. And I was glad to be with Andy on that day. I was getting over a virus that I had caught on a cruise earlier. <laughs> so I, it was a lower energy day for me as well. And that was the day, in fact, that because we just couldn't believe we hadn't gotten there yet, that we consulted the Kev Reynolds book to make sure. And the descriptions were just so specific that it was easy to to know that we were on the right path. That was actually, in, in my memory, that was one of the best days of our trek, actually, because it was such a beautiful trail. And then arriving at Refuge de Motet, or Les Motet, was amazing. Like, I just have such a great memory of that. It was so fun. Yes, it's a beautiful location. It's in this valley below, you know, this snowy peak that's behind it. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, I remember that we got in, Grant and I, maybe in five or so in the evening, and then we waited for you guys. We were going, okay, they'll be a little behind us. (laughs) And then we ordered a bottle of wine. And then I think an hour (laughs) later, we ordered another bottle of wine. And then we went inside because it was time for dinner and you guys still weren't there. And then we were starting to worry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then we ordered another bottle of wine and said, after this one, we'll go find them. And, <laughs> and then you guys came in just as they were serving dinner. And I think the yeah. whole, whole dining room cheered for you guys when you came it in. It was awesome. <laughs> we, we walked into this. It was a, basically at the Refuge de Matet. The dining area is this huge banquet hall set up sort of picnic table style. And it's got this very warm and mountain kind of vibe. And um, we walked in, everybody was cheering. And the serving people were just like, Oh, we're so glad you're here. Here's your party. And they whisked us off to sit next to you guys. And what was kind of special about it, aside from our heroic arrival, (laughs) was that they sat everybody by nationality. Mm -hmm. So you were sharing a table with other Americans. And then at another table were like the people, the French, and then the Brits and the Italians. So that it was, it was just kind of a fun thing. 
And then, and the food was extraordinary, as I recall, and plentiful. They just kept bringing it as much as, as you could eat. The people who worked there are, are just amazing. Um, and then after the meal was done, there was the singing. And yes. it was it was amazing. They I, I don't know if it was an accordion, but it was an accordion style instrument. And the um, staff kind of went serenading table to table. And this is where the nationalities sort of stood out. They came over to the American table and sang an American song. And I remember we were all singing with them. And then they went over to the British table and they sang a Beatles song. And then they went over to the French table and we sang. And and it just made it feel like, yeah, we're all on this adventure together. We're all coming together from all over the world. And it felt very much like everybody wanted us to all be there and be together. It was it was a really beautiful, beautiful moment. Yeah, that's so well put, Don. I, I really agree. That was That's a strong memory for me as well. Um, I also remember that Grant had bought a special bottle of scotch that he brought from Scotland. Um, <laughs> and he said that he was going to drink, that he and I were going to have a little bit each night throughout the entire trip. And then, of course, we met uh, a young American guy, climber, that night, and we drank the whole bottle with him. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. And then on day three, we, we actually, when you leave the refuge, you head uphill and you climb over the Col de la Seine into Italy. And we that was the day where we stopped at uh, Maison Vieille, which is in, right. in Italy, and is a, I guess, kind of a ski chalet above Cormayeur. And that was kind of a neat location and a totally different kind of vibe, but also I thought interesting. What did you think of that day and of and of that location? That was a terrific day as well. And I don't know if you had the same sense that I did, but I remember the border crossing between France and Italy was marked. And Grant and I were walking together at that time and we crossed the border and the trail felt different. I mean, not only are the markings different, it felt like we were on this old Roman road. And and we were like, we probably are. Yeah, I think we were. <laughs> I did read in the Cav Reynolds book that the Romans had come over that pass. Yeah, it just felt it, it felt quite a bit different than the French section somehow. And the place where we stayed, Maison Vieille, was perfect for our party because they had horses, they had cats. We got there fairly early, so we had time to hang out at some picnic tables looking out over Cormayor, which was our destination the next day. And it was just such a lovely, lovely time. And the staff there was also incredible. I remember the waitress coming up to us with these amazing another amazing meal, actually. And he said, well, now you're in Italy. Now you can really eat the good food, you know? And uh, it was just really fun. What I remember about that is she came up with this huge platter of food and we said, oh, I'm sorry, we, we didn't actually order this. Maybe you have the wrong table. And she says, no, 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 no. You're in Italy now. You're going to eat well. And she, yes, had just, yes. she had just brought it because <laughs> she wanted us to have a good meal and to share that, you know, this is a whole new experience all of a sudden. And she wanted us to know that. It was wonderful. It really was. Yeah. The hostel itself, this was sort of, I think, our first true hostel experience where we stayed in a bunk room with lots of people not in our party. That was, I don't know, that was fine. <laughs> I tell you, for me, what, what made a difference there is my earplugs. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we were in a pretty big bunk room there. Yeah. Yeah, but I think 
for our kids in particular, that was an amazing experience. At the end of dinner, they gave each of us an apple. And I think the apple really was for what it was used for was the horses because they had so many horses that were poking their heads into the restaurant. I remember that. <laughs> and and the, the kids just loved that. It was a pretty extraordinary experience. And then the next day, as you said, we could see Cormier from there. And then the next day was our planned easy day. And we basically just had a downhill walking down a ski slope, essentially, to get mm-hmm. down to Cormier. And Cormier is kind of a, you know, I don't know, I think of it almost like Vail. It's kind of a ritzy yeah. ski town with a, amazing shops and just a lot of good ice yes. cream shops and things like that, too, and restaurants. And that was a totally different experience than anything we'd seen up to that point. Yeah, it turned out that that was a great day for us because my daughter had been having some problems with her boots. So we spent the afternoon going to different trail boot shops and um, she got a really, really deluxe boot from Solomon, I think. It was, a, it was a boot that was made in Italy and it was really bold and bright and cheerful and she just loved it. And it, it really, it was really a wonderful souvenir. <laughs> oh, I remember that now. And it made a difference, a huge difference for her in being able to do the trip comfortably. Yes, it made a huge difference. And I think just that stop in Cormayor with the gelato and the pizza and all of that. The next day, our kids were just so excited. <laughs> yeah. And I, one thing that I remember about Cormayor is we stayed in the um, Hotel Bouton d'Or. And yes. they had the breakfast they had there the next day was unbelievable. It was just like every kind of pastry and it was all homemade. And it was just, and I think the the woman who, Ran the hotel, said her husband actually made all the pastries. It was a terrific hotel. It was, we all, I think we all had doubles that night. And it was just kind of, it's just a nice, it's nice to have the different variations throughout the hike. The day after that, we went uphill at first out of the town. It was a pretty steep climb, but then you fall along the sort of the wall of the Val Ferre, which Mm -hmm. is just an amazing valley. And you get to, uh, Refugio Bonatti, which is quite a location. Can you talk a little bit about oh. that? <laughs> it was amazing. The outdoor picnic area, once you get there, just you can't imagine a more beautiful spot to hang out and, and have a drink and, or just take in the view. It was a really special day. And I do remember they had their own branded chocolate that we kept buying. They had, had some Refugio <laughs> Bonatti on the chocolate bar. I had several of those. I didn't remember that, but I do remember they had a brand new litter of kittens that were just a few days old that everybody enjoyed playing with. I remember Sonia and Andy just hanging out on the cliff, looking out over the valley. It was it was just such a beautiful day. And then the next day is when you actually leave Italy. Mm-hmm. This is day six now we're on, and it's about it's a pretty long day as far as hiking. It's about 20 kilometers or 12 miles, but you go uphill, first you're along the valley, and then you go uphill over the Col Ferre, and that brings you into Switzerland. Yes. What was your impression of, you know, we talked about how Italy felt different, and what, what did you think about how it felt once we left Italy and walked into Switzerland? I felt it was the same way. There was a huge, huge difference in the way the trail felt. Swiss, the Switzerland part, it felt actually much more gentle. We were going through a lot of valleys and sort of farmland and little old villages that were super charming. It was actually quite a gentle part of the trail, which you always think of Switzerland as as being quite 
quite challenging or whatever, but, but it was, I, it was one of my favorite parts of the hike and I didn't expect it to be one of my favorite parts of the hike, but it definitely was. I remember a couple of interesting things. One is when we got down the hill, we stopped at the first little outpost and we ordered a beer and it was like $10. That was the first thing. Yes. Price, That's the, Switzerland, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, price, the prices were higher for, for very, yes. you know, for pretty much everything. Um, but I also remember that we lucked out and we actually happened to be there on their national holiday, like their, their equivalent of 4th of July. And they had yes. fire, fireworks that night and parades. And it was quite an interesting experience to be there for their national day of independence or whatever it was. That was a very happy surprise. <laughs> it was really fun. And we stayed at the Hotel Edelweiss yes. that first night. And I remember it being, um, you know, we, we checked into the hotel, we had to take off our boots at the front door. And we went upstairs to our dorm room. And it was perfect. There were eight beds all in a row, we were a party of eight. So we had the whole dorm to ourselves, which was really fun. It felt like a party. It felt like a sleepover. Yeah, (laughs) it was was a great night. (laughs) Yeah. And it was super clean. I mean, it was the kind of place you definitely would take your boots off before you came into the door. I thought Hotel Edelweiss was quite a fun experience for us. And I don't know if I'm remembering this wrong, but I think when my daughter, Sonia, was walking along the street in the town as we were approaching the hotel, a car pulled up to her and there was sort of an older man in the car and he handed her an Edelweiss, a flower. Oh. (laughs) And said something like, welcome to Switzerland or something like that. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. (laughs) Which I thought was really, really a nice touch. Yes. Yeah, that was a that was a, a great part of the hike. So that was to La Folie was the name of the town. Mm-hmm. And the next day we went from La Folie to Champex, which was yes. an easy first half of the day, sort of down a valley like you talked about. There was quite a bit of a climb at the end to get up to where Lake Champex is. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, Lake Champex is another completely different environment that I didn't expect yes. to find. Can you talk a little bit yes. about that? It was quite different than Courmayeur or Chamonix. It was a little more small townish, I would say, but yet it was like a really fun town that was tourist. Like they would, for example, they had restaurants that were right on the lake. It was a town where real people live. Um, it wasn't just filled with tourists. Maybe it was. It was a really different feel. It had the feeling of a lake town like the lake was a big part of that town i would say compared to skiing in courmayeur agreed agreed the lake was a central thing in the particularly in the summer i guess i don't know if people ice skate there in the winter or whatever but (laughs) in the summer there were people out on paddle boards and little boats Mm -hmm. and they were definitely using the lake which was cool and you had quite a view of a glacier across the valley from what i remember Mm -hmm. and then i looked it up our our hotel was actually called the hotel glacier the hotel glacier oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then the next day I'd say was, and, and I should mention, we talked about that day too, that was really difficult. And that was an, an optional day in the sense that we had opted to take that more difficult route to have mm-hmm. the views, to have the challenge. And the next day after Lake Champex, we did the same thing. And we decided to do uh, the Fenêtre d'Apet option. Right. And can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that was? Well, the Fenêtre d'Apet had... It was our second most difficult day, I would say. Not mileage-wise, I don't think, but elevation gain. And the trail itself also made it more difficult because it was a rocky trail. 
And um, it wasn't just like an easy walk or even an easy climb. Like you had to think about your route a little bit because it was, it truly was rocky. But if you have the strength to do it, I highly, highly recommend it because as you climb up to the top, when you get there, you're right next to a glacier. Like it's the closest we came on the whole hike to a glacier. And it was amazing. And also just the view into the next valley was pretty amazing. And it's just a different style of hiking rather than going on a nice soft trail through a meadow. I think it's really nice to have that variety. And the Fenetra Darpet certainly offers that. I totally agree. That was a, it was a different kind of hiking. We was basically boulder scrambling a lot of the way. Yes. And that's the kind of stuff you might do, for example, in a big valley in the High Sierra, on the Eastern High Sierra or something like that. So it was a different, and that's something we hadn't seen up to that point on the trail. So that was pretty cool. And as you said, the, the Glacier du Trion mm-hmm. is at the, the other side of the, the window, the fenêtre. And it's just amazing. It's right there. I think we have a picture of with your son, Max, out on this rock that yeah. sticks out over the glacier almost, or the way it looks in the picture, where it's just yeah. a fantastic spot. You know, unfortunately, the glacier is retreating quite rapidly, but it's still yeah. pretty large and it's still right there. And there's a roaring river that comes out of it at the bottom. And it's quite a quite a sight. That was a tough one that spread our group out quite a bit again. And um, once again, I appreciate that you you helped Andy get to the top. <laughs> well, my sort of hiking philosophy is definitely we are here for each other. I mean, that's what makes hiking fun. Absolutely. And the other side of that pass uh, was a pretty steep downhill climb. And when Andy got to the top and you got to the top, she needed more time to rest and recover than some of us who had been there for a while. So some of us started out and a couple hours down the, the, the other side, there's a little cafe and that ended yes. up, it's called the, the Chalet du Glacier. And that was a, a really cool little spot where we could hang out and wait for the group to kind of come back together. And the kids had ice cream and Grant and I had a few too many beers and, um, <laughs> and that we, was a, it was, uh, it was perfect actually, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yes. And so that was a nice, uh, stop before we got to the town of, uh, Trion, which was a neat little town as well. I will say that that is one of the things that I enjoy about hiking is that when you're in a group sort of like our size, you can make it the hike that you want it to be. You can take it at a fast pace and go on your own or go with somebody else who also wants to go at a fast pace, or you can take it at a slower pace. Your group doesn't need to be glued at the hip, right? It's nice. You can experience things on your own and you can also share the experience. Yeah. And it works out because you know where you're staying that night and you know where the spots are along the way that are sort of checkpoints in a way, like, you know, getting to the top of the pass or to that little restaurant or to the town. So it does allow people to take their have their own pace and then you can come back together when it makes sense. The two things I remember about that town, one is that it had a pink church. <laughs> and the other thing I remember is a large group of Korean hikers. <laughs> yes, yes. It's nice how people come from all over to experience the trail. Yeah, but they were in like a group of, I w- it must have been like 60 people. It was a huge group. And I, I talked to their guide who interpreted for them, I think the next day, and they were telling me how that they were doing, I think, a, a sizable section of the route. They weren't doing the entire loop, but they had picked out a 60 or 70 mile section that they were doing as for like a week. I guess that's one thing that I would mention too, 
that you don't have to have the ability to hike 115 miles and with 35,000 gain to do to experience Mont Blanc. You can section hike it, you know, and of course you'll enjoy it more if you prepare. Like if you if you walk or hike in your own local neighborhood before you go, it's it's always more fun to hike when you're in shape. But yeah, you don't have to do the whole thing to experience it. That's a good point. And I think that's true of almost any big hike like this, that, you know, there are ways to do these to make it work for almost anyone. Mm-hmm. And so the next day we left Switzerland after three nights in Switzerland. And then we went over a, a pass where there was a restaurant at the top, which was nice. <laughs> yes, I remember that as well. <laughs> and then down to Trey Le Champ, um, which had the most interesting little auberge, the little refuge where we stayed. Um, I don't know if you remember that well, but the La Boerne, it was almost like a little hobbit house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was very fun. I was feeling a little uh, sad at this point because it was feeling like, okay, now we're back in France. It's almost over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. the kids were definitely in high spirits. I, I remember them sitting outside and playing cards and it was a, it was a very fun time. Yeah. And I, I, for some reason, I also remember that it was really hot that night. And we did not, none of us slept very well, I don't think. Yes. But that wasn't so bad because the next day we had a really short uh, hike as far as distance, although not, there was challenge to it, but um, it was only a few kilometers to get up to Lac Blanc, which is a a, a really neat refuge that has a fantastic view of the mountain range. But to get there, we had to go through the toughest part of the entire hike for you. You want to talk a little bit about the ladders? Oh, yes. (laughs) The ladders in retrospect, but I think for most people, the ladders would not be a problem. Um, what Jeremy is referring to is as you go along the trail, there's this part of the trail that they have permanently installed. I, I have to admit that they were very well-built ladders, very sturdy. Like you couldn't want for better ladders, <laughs> but I have a severe fear of heights. And I think what was going through my head was not like the ladder is going to fail. It was more like, maybe I'll black out because I'm so scared or something like that. I don't know. But I was terrified. But I did get through it thanks to, I think it was your coaching. <laughs> yes, I think I was right below you on the ladders. And I was like, you're you're doing fine. You'll be okay. It's going to be It fine. really helped a lot. <laughs> I have to say it made a huge difference. There is a variant that you can take <laughs> to avoid the ladders. And I might do that variant at some point. I don't know. But I did get through it. Thanks yeah. to your coaching and, and, and the ladders really, you know, if, if you're, if you don't have a fear of heights, they're, they're great. Yeah. So. I, th- I thought it was a cool feature. Again, another sort of variation on the trail that was new and different and made it more interesting. Yes. And then Lac Blanc is an amazing spot. It's a small Alpine Lake. Our kids swam in it, which, I mean, it's freezing cold, but they went in it. Yes. And, um, you have this view. You swam in it as well. Yeah, I did. That's right. I at least got in. I don't know that I actually swam too much. I probably, you know, got in for about 10 seconds. <laughs> and the refuge was amazing as well. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. It's a beautiful spot with a nice balcony and good food and the very cute little dining room and the rooms I thought were nice. So after Lac Blanc, we finished the hike in Chamonix where we stayed for a night. And so the last day was basically, we had some pretty heavy fog and we ended up going downhill and and decided to go into Chamonix instead of all the way back to Les Zouches. Though I actually went all the way back to Les Zouches with a couple of the kids because I had to retrieve the car that we left there. 
I think that it meant a lot to the the kids who did go to be able to say they circumnavigated the entire Mont Blanc. <laughs> yes. I admit it was important to me too, and I'm stubborn and you knew that. And <laughs> and I didn't want to stop in Chamonix. I wanted to walk all the way back to Les Zouch instead of take a bus to get the car. It worked out. <laughs> it worked out. Everybody got what they wanted. <laughs> yes. So as as you look back on this hike, why was this a really a great hike to do? What what do you think about when you think about this hike and, and what made it worthwhile for you? The scenery is amazing. It's just like a picture postcard, beautiful scenery. But I think what makes this hike really special is the fact that you get to go through three distinct cultures and how different each of those cultures are, even though they're within walking distance of one another. And I think you can make the hike how you want it. For us, it was great to do the challenging variants and feel like we had really gone around the whole mountain. And there was that sense of accomplishment as well. I think really the it's a special place and we were really lucky to have had access to it. I completely agree. Is there a particular moment that stands out for you that when you think back on this? Well, trip? for me, it would have to be at the Refuge de Motet, where it just felt like the people at the refuge were just bringing us all together to share this moment. It was just a really special place and time. All right. Well, thanks for talking with me about the Tour de Mont Blanc. But before you go, I've got a few more questions. Sure. So what is one piece of gear you don't leave home without? I always hike with my Katadin B-Free, which is a very lightweight water filter. And the reason why is even on shorter hikes where I, I don't need to filter water, I feel like it's a great piece of emergency gear. So if for some reason we get stuck out on the trail longer than we expected, um, you can always add to your water resources. And also I hate to carry extra weight. And in Washington state where I hike, water is pretty abundant. So I actually do just hike with the amount of water that I need to get to the first water source or whatever, and then replenish. It's great. I feel like it just increases uh, my enjoyment of the hike so much not to have to carry that extra water weight. I completely agree. I also use the Cadet and Be Free for backpacking and for day hikes, and it's a fantastic piece of gear. I've had a couple of them have issues over time where they, the flow got hard to, to work. And or, for example, I got a puncture, which is my fault. I've learned to put them in a separate like stuff sack to keep it from getting yes. punctured. But overall, it's a great piece of gear. And when I've had one fail, I go buy another one because I like having it. Exactly. And one tip I would have with the Cadet and Be Free is at the beginning of the season, always test it to make sure it's still filtering because it can kind of the flow can decrease dramatically all of a sudden. What is the one hike or trip you've done besides the one we've talked about today that others shouldn't miss out on? Well, I love hiking in Washington state, as you know, and for me, my most beautiful jaw dropping uh, hike would be a section of the Wonderland trail. You get on the trail at Box Canyon and you can hike to Indian Bar. And what's amazing about that hike is it's sort of like a classic Pacific Northwest hike where you start out in this old growth, super luxuriant forest for a few miles. And then you break out of the forest and you start going through small meadows and forests. The trail starts to roll and you catch little views 
of the Goat Rocks Wilderness in that direction. And then all of a sudden you go up a little bit more and you're above the tree line. Mount Rainier is there. It's sort of like a sound of music kind of moment. It's amazingly beautiful. And then you keep going. You could stop right there, but you keep going and you dip into this little valley that at the bottom is Indian Bar. And it's a waterfall with a stream. It has a beautiful shelter, even an outdoor toilet. (laughs) It's accessible day hiking. It's about 15 miles round trip with about 3,100 gains. So you can do it, but it's not that heavily trafficked of a trail because you have to have a permit to go backpacking on the Wonderland Trail. And those permits are pretty hard to get. Um, But this is the way to experience it as a day hike. It's only a couple hours from Seattle. It's it's an extraordinary trail. That sounds great. We're going to have to do that next time Andy and I come up. (laughs) That'd be great. What's the next big trip on your list? Well, I'm looking forward to another summer of leading hikes for the mountaineers. And part of why I'm doing that, not part, I always do it every summer, but part of what will be helpful is it's conditioning me to go on our next big hike together on the West Highland Way in Scotland. Yes. That was my trick question because I know we are going to be hiking (laughs) again together, but this time it will be different because the kids will not be with us because they're all in college and beyond uh, (laughs) at this point. Yes. It'll be our first hike, just the four of us. Yeah. So that should be fun. Um, I've heard great things about the West Highland Way and we're using Max Adventures again. Yes, definitely. Um, we had such a great experience with Max, Max Adventures. We will book with them again. And also it's in their backyard. So it makes sense. Yeah, they're a Scottish company. Yes. Yeah. yes. So we'll go with Max Adventures again. And I think uh, we'll take it at the easier pace again to make it enjoyable for all. I'm really looking forward to this. We've been talking about doing this for a few years. And I think we got delayed a bit because of COVID. But I'm hopeful that summer 2022 will be our year. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward to it, too. And um, of course, someday I will have an episode on it. And it's it's about a 100-mile trail through some of the highlights of Scotland, as I understand it. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure it'll be great. Yeah, I think so. I'm looking forward to it. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done when you were hiking? Oh, uh, well... The dumbest thing I've ever done is this past summer when I was leading a hike for the Mountaineers, I showed up to the trailhead with two left boots and they looked almost identical. One of the blue is my favorite color. So actually the boots that I had worn on the Tour de Mont Blanc, which I've kept in my closet just for sentimental reasons, they're pretty worn out at this point. So I have another pair of boots that look quite similar and I took two left boots and showed up at the trailhead. Fortunately, uh, one of the other, I had sent out a note the night before explaining that on this particular trail, you could either wear high tops or low tops for boots. And so one of the hikers had brought both boots (laughs) to Ah. talk with me about it on the, uh, you know, at the trailhead. And so she loaned me one of her boots. So I was able we were able to go. It would have been a bit of a disaster if she hadn't done that. Thank God somebody <laughs> somebody was so overprepared. Yeah, I was wondering what the the end of the story was going to be. I was going I was wondering how you were going to get out of this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't it was not a happy ending because it was a a pretty steep. I was happy that I got to go and lead it, but it was a pretty steep trail and the boot my right boot was two sizes mm. too big, so my foot was 
slipping around. It wasn't, it was not great, but I was able to do the hike and, and enjoy it. All right. Last question. What's the best backpacking or hiking advice you've gotten? Mm. Start early. It's always better to start early for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's bound to be cooler and, um, and more enjoyable to get an early start, but it's also a safety reason. If something goes wrong, like somebody um, twists an ankle, somebody gets overheated, you can slow down and not have any worries about the time. So that that's nice. I totally agree. Start early is a great thing to do. And I have another reason for doing it. And for me, one of the reasons I really like to start early is the solitude. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of times I will get to experience trails when nobody's on them until I'm sort of returning or at the end of a loop or coming back. And I realize what a different experience that is to be out in these areas completely alone for a few hours before I see anybody. And then you get back and you still have half of your day left, which is nice potentially. Yes, that is also a great reason. Yeah, So I I agree. Starting early is a, a great thing to do. And here also parking is a consideration at some of the trailheads. It gets pretty crowded. Yeah, that's the same here. Yeah. All right, Don, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. It's always fun to relive happy memories. Thanks again to Don Kinsel for coming on the show. And I hope that Don and I have inspired you to hike the Tour de Mont Blanc. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it and tell a friend about the show. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to remind you about OutdoorHerbivore.com, where you can get great, tasty, vegan and vegetarian backpacking meals. And as I've said many times, you don't need to be a vegan or vegetarian to enjoy these meals. They're high-quality, tasty backpacking meals with plenty of calories for a hungry hiker. I just ordered a bunch of the meals using the discount code for Trails Worth Hiking listeners, which is TWH10P. As I mentioned at the outset of the show, I have several trips planned coming up, and I wanted to make sure I was stocked up on delicious dinners for those trips. I'm actually planning to start the year in Point Reyes National Seashore in about a week. It's a place I love and have backpacked many times and in all seasons, and it's really one of the best winter options close to where I live. And I do plan to do an episode on Point Reyes eventually. So that's how I'm going to start the year, and I'll be taking Outdoor Herbivore meals with me. So OutdoorHerbivore.com, check them out. Let's talk about our next show. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we have another first. Next time, it will be our first trip in New England. We'll be doing a fantastic loop hike within reach of the most densely populated part of the United States. Even so, it's in wilderness known for its ruggedness, beauty, and at times unpredictable weather. We'll be traveling a trail that takes hikers over eight summits in 30 miles, or about 50 kilometers. The route has reservable camping, backcountry wild camping, and even two mountain huts, similar to the refuges of the Alps that we talked about on this episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Pema Jawasset Loop in the White Mountains, 
of New Hampshire. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.